let's, um, if you would, uh, pray with me one more time as we dive into this chapter of the book of Hebrews. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and we thank you again for your mercy and your grace. I'm so honored and I'm so delighted to be able to touch upon such a marvelous chapter of Scripture and to journey through the pages and through the verses and through the passages of this chapter together as a church. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to apprehend what it is that uh, you want us to learn from uh, the examples that are given to us here in Hebrews 11 and how that is to inform and to encourage and to enable and to embolden us to persevere uh, to the end, to be faithful uh, in our walk with you, to be pleasing to you in all respects. Help us, Lord. Give us a walk that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here we are at last, Hebrews chapter 11. And um, I am so delighted to be here. It's been a long journey up to this point. This is a chapter that I've been wanting to preach for many, many years, and so it is finally upon us. Funny, I got done with my sermon last night, and I told my wife, I said, uh, I said you know, I, I, I'm done with the, the manuscript, and already I'm getting sermon remorse because I know that I will not do this justice, but I will try. Uh, I will do what I can do under God's grace and pray that the Spirit will do the rest as He drives it home into our hearts this is a, a, a section of, of, of Scripture that really gives us a found, some foundational uh, things regarding faith. And so the, the title of this sermon is The Foundations of Faith, Foundations of Faith, because it is so fundamental what is being said here. Um, I just want to read the section that we're going to be looking at today. I just want to read it again for us. Beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That's the section of Scripture given to us here. And I want to I want to tackle three different aspects of faith today. Number one, I want to look at the definition of faith. Of course, because that is what the author of Hebrews is giving us here. He is giving us a definition of faith. Aren't you glad and aren't you grateful that Scripture defines what faith is for us so we don't have to define it for ourselves? Uh, The reason I'm thankful for that, of course, is because uh, the world has multiple misconceptions of faith, multiple misunderstandings of what faith is. And of course, for some people, faith is nothing more than wishful thinking. But the Bible gives us a robust understanding of what faith is and what faith is not. So I am grateful that we have faith defined for us in this section of Scripture. Um, Let me begin by, I guess, talking a little bit about what the text gives us here. There are two terms, if you haven't noticed, that are critical for understanding what faith is. Those words here, at least in the NASB, is the term assurance and the term conviction. It, is, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. Now, 
do a little work with me here in terms of what these words are saying. The Greek word hypostasis is where we get the word nature. It's uh, speaking of something here more akin to assurance or to essence, but I think assurance is really the, um, the operative word here. What does it mean when it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for? I guess the the easiest way I can define this for us is to speak of the fact that what Hebrews is saying is that faith substantiates our hope. Uh, that's another way of saying that faith makes our hope real. So what's happening is that there is a subjective element to our faith. Faith is the subjective confirmation to the soul of the believer that what he or she is hoping in is real. I mean, think about it, because here we're dealing again with things that are not seen, right? That is apparent throughout this passage. It is the conviction of things not seen. Again, we will be told of Noah, that Noah had to prepare the ark and to warn people about things not seen. And all throughout this chapter, we are dealing with the things that cannot be seen, tasted, touched, listened to, observed with the physical senses. That's very important for us because what we understand is that Christianity is not, in the final analysis, empiricism. In other words, when Jesus said, blessed are you who do not see, yet believe, what he is saying is that you are blessed when your faith does not rest on physical observation. You are blessed when you have a Christianity that is not based upon the limitations of empiricism. Again, what can be detected through the senses? That is not what Christianity is. It's not that it doesn't incorporate sensory experience, sensory data, empirical observation. It certainly does. But Christianity, brothers and sisters, is a supernatural phenomenon. It is not something that can be scientifically explained away. Faith is a spiritual gift. That's why the world knows nothing about it. Because they're trying to assize what it is that... Our Christianity is all about using terms that belong to a naturalistic worldview, when in fact our faith is supernatural. We have a supernatural God. Faith is a supernatural gift of God that gives us the supernatural ability to come into actual content with things not seen. I love faith because faith makes what is unseen, concrete in our soul. You can rest assured that there is a heaven awaiting you, that there is a Christ seated on the throne, that there is a second coming that is pending. You can rest assured that there is a world to come. You can rest assured that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun because of the testimony of Scripture, of the supernatural revelation of God. More on that in a second. But again, what this does is it shows us that far from fideism, this idea that faith is simply a wishful thinking, faith is something that operates a priori, which means that, that faith is something that happens aside from any factual evidence. How many, how many times have you had a friend or a neighbor or someone that you're witnessing to tell you, well, it all boils down to faith anyway. It's just what you believe. 
right? Now, of course, I think we have to clarify very quickly here that uh, it's not just that faith is a subjective notion. It is that. But our faith is also rooted and grounded in the objective, right? And that's where Scripture is so, so important. See, the second term that is given to us here is conviction. The, the important thing about this term here is that probably not the best translation in uh, in English from the Greek, because the word uh, that is used here, eleknos, is, or elekkos, is actually a term that simply speaks of evidence. Uh, it's a word that is not really used in the Bible, but in extra-biblical context, like Josephus uses it uh, in a context in his writings in the Antiquities to talk about presenting evidence as a case to accuse someone. So it definitely has an evidential component. And what is the author of, say, of Hebrews saying? What he's saying is that our subjective faith, what comes to us through the gift of faith, is actually evidencing our hope. It's evidencing the things that are not seen. It's making them real, bringing them home to us. And that is so beautiful. So what happens in the rest of Hebrews? In the rest of Hebrews, what we see is subjective faith made objectively observable. That's what it's all about. The assurance that we possess because of faith is made visible. See, no one can see your assurance. No one can pry into your heart, into your soul. No one can pry into your mind. No one can see inside of you to see do you actually have the assurance that faith gives. But... They can see your life, and they can see whether or not your life actually validates or testifies to the very things that you claim to believe. It's a really powerful dynamic, the, subject, the subjective giving evidence of the objective in our lives. Listen to this very carefully. When hope is made personal and intimate through faith, it will be manifested publicly through faithful obedience and conformity to the will of God. That's what we're seeing in all of this. That's what we're seeing in all of this. Our whole life is a life where we put our trust in what we cannot see. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, because, and then later expounding on this, the Apostle Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, or 5, 7, he says, he basically sums up our entire Christian walk this way. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now, give us an example of this. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning of verse 16. Watch this. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, this is such a beautiful passage because we all live right here, understanding, getting in touch with our humanness, getting in touch with our finiteness, with our limitations, getting in touch with our frailty. He says, we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary and light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension or all comparison, rather. While we look not, here's it, we, we, we look not at the things that are seen. Question, how do you look? Now, funny way of talking, isn't it? How do you look at what's unseen? It's kind of a riddle, isn't it? It's not a riddle when you're thinking about faith. 
See, faith gives us the ability to see the invisible. That's what he's saying. We look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things that are seen, here we go, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what our faith is rooted and grounded in. That is what it means to have an assurance that is subjective and that our faith is evidencing where we have evidence for the things that are not seen because our faith makes them individually, personally intimate and subjectively real to every believer in here. I mean, think about that. The things that you're hoping in, the biggest things that you hope in, heaven, God, Christ, salvation, these are all metaphysical realities that you cannot see. These things are real, but you cannot detect them. You can't take a bottle of heaven to someone when you're witnessing to them. Say, here's a slice of heaven. I know they'd like a slice of heaven. But you cannot take them anything that they could physically see or touch or smell or taste or anything. That's why the gospel is all about faith. What is it that God demands of the world? Well, God demands that you believe. Uh, Matter of fact, Theologians have pointed this out, that there are three aspects of saving faith, and I've shared this with you on numerous occasions. There is the aspect of saving faith that tells us that we have to believe in the facts of the gospel. That's cognition. There's another aspect that says that we also have to assent to the facts of the gospel. That is conviction. And there is also that aspect of faith that says we also must trust in the gospel. And that is confidence. So we have cognition, conviction, and confidence. That is the the, the sort of the, the, um, the three aspects of saving faith. And all of those are part of the genuine believer. But it's not just that we're told here what faith is. It's more than that. It's also the prerequisite, or what Hebrews is giving us here, is a prerequisite of faith. In other words, what we could say, not only faith defined, but faith demanded. Look at verse 2. For by faith, we could say, the men of old gained approval. That's a really interesting thought, that by faith, the men of old gained approval. Now, the, the word there, the men of old, is a really interesting utilization of the term. It's actually presbyteros, which we get our term elder for like a pastor is an elder. But here, it's, it means something like the, the men of old or the elders, but one translation has the ancients. And that's exactly what it's referring to. It's referring to the ancient people of old, that by faith they had gained approval by God. Now, that's an interesting term, approval or gained approval. You know, the, the, the actual root meaning of that term is testimony or to testify. Uh, it comes from martureo, which means to bear witness or to testify. But what is it saying? Because it's in the passive meaning it's in the passive voice, meaning it's not that these people were testifying, but it is that someone was testifying about these people. That's a distinction. The fact that it is in the passive voice means that God is the one who put his stamp of approval upon them. It is a divine passive. And that is what we all want, is it not? If it's not what you want now, it needs to be. It needs to be that your life 
is to be lived in such a way that you can say, I have gained approval. But we have to be careful there to, uh, to, to indicate exactly what it is that he's saying here. He's not saying that works or obedience resulted in justification. That's a, that's a common mistake that people make. Same thing with James chapter 2, uh, the classic passage on faith and works. It is not that they were justified by their obedient faith, but it was uh, their, their works of obedience, but it was that they were justified by faith. The justification of James chapter 2 is much like this passage here that it was evidencing justification. It's validating justification. And that's why what James says is so relevant to what's being said here. Just like the body without a spirit is an empty shell, so too faith without works, as James tells us, is dead. But these people had genuine faith, and therefore they had genuine works to back it up, and God approved of their lifestyle. God approved of their lifestyle. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the first demonstration of faith. In one sense, we can say the whole chapter is about demonstrating faith. Let's read verse 3 carefully. It says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, notice the very first instance. This is so important for us. Why does the author begin with a reference to creation? He says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. So what's the ultimate object of the faith here? It is The object is that we believe and trust in the Word of God. Think about it. It's a perfect way to begin this chapter, to say that real genuine faith, evidenced and demonstrated, begins first and foremost with an absolute, total, uncompromising, unflinching commitment to the tenacity of Scripture, to the reliability of the Bible, to the testimony of Scripture. This is very important because, once again, it tells us and it illustrates for us that our worldview is fundamentally supernatural. Why? Because our worldview is based on revelation. It's based on revelation. Based on revelation. Everybody has a competing uh, idea of the origin of the universe. Evolution is the air that people breathe. Um, people take it for granted. You go to a college campus, and time after time, how many students have I talked to? They just assume evolution's true. I mean, of course. They just live under the theology, the doctrine, the philosophy of, of an, of an anti-supernatural, materialistic worldview known as Darwinian evolution. They just believe that the world evolved somehow, long ago, and uh, somebody used to say long ago, when you hear the words long ago, it really means uh, long ago and far away because here comes the fairy tale. That all of a sudden, nothing exploded. Have you read the science books on this? The science books say that at some point in time, very interesting, no explanation of how time got there. Everything in the universe, no explanation of how space got there. Everything, all the material aspects of the universe were gathered into an infinitesimal point 
no bigger than the period at the end of a sentence, and was spinning at a revolution that would blow your mind. No explanation of how motion or energy got there. And that eventually this little tiny dot, here we go, guys, we all came from the dot, exploded. <laughs> no explanation on who pulled the trigger. And that out of that infinitesimal dot of matter, everything flung into existence by itself. What? Recently, Richard Dawkins was interviewed about his belief that everything came from nothing. You know what he said when the crowd began laughing at him? He said, why are you laughing at me? I'm just saying that nothing, everything came from nothing. <laughs> this is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 will happen to you precisely. When you deny your creator, you deny your maker, you profess to be wise, you will actually become a fool. A, a, a foolish, darkened mind that rejects the testimony of Scripture of the most foundational thing of all, namely how everything came into being. You know, this creation model is something that you need to teach aggressively to your children. It's something that you need to teach aggressively in your family. Because if you remember, even from our studies on biblical theology, when God is redeeming the nation of Israel, He often reminds them that He is their Creator. It is such a powerful tool to remind someone, anyone, that the Creator of all things is also the only Redeemer that they have. He is to be credited with all creation. And only the Bible, exclusively the Bible, gets the creation account correctly, and that is something that we receive on the basis of faith. God confirms it to us um, subjectively, but it, it is also grounded in objective truth, namely Scripture. The Bible is perfectly coherent here. Other religions are not. You have systems of Hinduism and Eastern thought that try to tell us that the universe actually exists on the back of a giant tortoise. You have Islam, for example, in two different sections of the Quran telling us that the world was created in six days and then another section of the Quran telling us, oh no, actually God took eight days to create the world. Many innate contradictions in these worldviews. And again, you have the evolutionary model that completely contradicts the biblical model of creation. I tell you what, I am a committed presuppositionalist, and I'm going to tell you why in a second. But that does not mean at all that we should not have a robust biblical understanding of creation and a doctrine of creation. That is important. For example, when you meet a professing Christian that tries to tell you that God used evolution in order to create the world is completely out of step with the Bible on many, many, many accounts. Number one, they, they deny and they reject the plain teaching of Scripture that God created the world in six literal days. Number two, they deny and they reject the order in which God created the world that life was created first on land and then in the sea. 
the evolutionist has it completely backwards. They claim all of life on earth emerged out of the sea. That is completely contrary and contradictory to what the, the scriptures tell, tell you. The other thing that they get wrong is that evolution assumes that there had been, huh, talk about a pattern of death, uh, there had been eons of death prior to sin entering into the world. See, now you're touching on harmatology, which is the theology of sin. And harmatology is, is inextricable from soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Your understanding of how sin came into the world will affect the way that God deals with the sin in the world. If, he didn't, if it didn't come in in the literal sense in which God says it came in, then maybe God is not dealing with it in the literal sense in which God says he deals with it. Maybe the Bible is, after all, just a book of myths, a collection of sayings. But no, listen to what the author of Hebrews says again. By faith, we understand. You see that there? In other words, it is faith-informing thought. In other words, the noetic effects of faith is that we are brought into conformity to the thinking of God. Brothers and sisters, unless we begin with the foundation that all of life is based on revelation from God, we are doomed. Christianity is a worldview of revelation. Let me explain it to you this way. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do you know what you know? How do you know that you know anything at all for certain? Without revelation, you do not. But it is based on revelation. Metaphys metaphysics is the theory of reality, what is real. Well, how do you know that your metaphysics is actually true? You don't, unless you have revelation. Well, what about ethics? How do you know which ethics is the study of morality? How do you know what is moral and what is not moral unless you have a transcendent, objective, all-authoritative source of revelation? You do not. What about beauty, which is to say aesthetics, the study of beauty or art? Aesthetics, why is it wrong to put a crucifix in a bottle of urine and call it art? If you don't have revelation from God, you don't know what beautiful is. I learned this when I was doing missions in Africa. Prepare yourselves. In Africa, I learned very, very quickly that I was not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> um, the nationals from Sudan who were in Uganda, the women, just to give you an example of this, um, they do most of the work throughout the day. The men sit and drink all day. That's what they do, no, no lie. Um, the women also walk around with no shirt. They mow their lawn without a shirt. So imagine me, Westerner, walking down a dusty, dirty path. Ladies out there mowing her lawn with a machete, no shirt. Whoa. Look to the other side of the jungle. What is that? Is that relative? Is there anything wrong with that? Is it just a cultural thing? Do you know that the Christian women from Sudan wear shirts? Do you know that the women in Sudan, 
after they have been taught by the revelation of God what is proper, what is modest, what is beauty, what is not beautiful, what is immodest, what is modest, what is acceptable, a a, a proper view of sexuality. Do you understand that these women, after they had their mind trained and conformed by revelation, all of a sudden adopted biblical principles of modesty and no longer walk around without a t-shirt? It was amazing. It takes God's word to train us to understand reality, to understand morality, ethics, philosophy, history, politics, everything, sexuality. What is going on in our culture right now is the complete abandonment of revelation being possible, that it is even possible that God can speak. And therefore, as John MacArthur recently pointed out, you go from a sexual revolution to a homosexual revolution to complete moral anarchy. And that's exactly what you see. I just read an uh, article. Uh, you remember uh, the, the court judge, Judge Davis. Uh, I forgot where she's at. Where's she at? Tennessee or something? Well, somebody is suing her now for being unwilling to give them a marriage license to an animal. They want to marry a pet. This is where our country's at. We laugh and we scoff and we think it's funny or ludicrous or absurd, but we really have come to these moral parameters where we no longer know what is right and what is wrong. I hate to, I hate to break it to you, but what is happening today with technology is being used in the most sinister ways you can possibly imagine, all in an attempt to undermine biblical sexuality, biblical anthropology, and ultimately to renounce biblical revelation. Where now they're talking about giving personhood rights to robots because people are starting to marry robots or wanting to marry their robots. I mean, again, the absurdity of it all. But what does the Bible say? God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. If you want to build a country on generations of immorality, pornography, licentiousness, license, do not be surprised when... A gentleman in Florida wants to marry his pornographic computer and files to try to do so. <laughs> so when the Bible says that God gave them over to a futile mind, what it means is a mind completely devoid of revelation, a mind that is in total and complete darkness, and by faith, you and I accept that the world was created by the Word of God. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 33. Because he did it, and he did it without our permission, without asking us. He did it by divine fiat, and it was done. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 6. By the word of the Lord... 
the heavens were made. See that? Now, the only way that we know that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made is by the word of the Lord. This is why I am a committed presuppositionalist when it comes to apologetics. What does presuppositionalism teach? This is the theology of Cornelius Van Til. This was the theology of Greg Bonson, of John Frame. This is the theology of many scholars that have come and gone. But what is presuppositionalism talking about? What it says is that without God's revelation, it is impossible to know anything at all for certain. That's the best way you can put it. In other words, predication is not possible apart from God. Predication meaning the ability to speak on anything intelligibly. And as those theologians pointed out, it is not that we're saying, it is not that we're saying the atheist cannot count. Two plus two is four. Or in our postmodern world, maybe it's five. I don't know. It is not that atheists can't do mathematics. They certainly can. But the only reason they're able to do mathematics is not because of an atheist worldview. It's because of a supernatural biblical worldview. It's because he's made in the image of God. It's because God created all things according to his word to reflect his person, his character, his righteousness. Why is man a logical, rational, moral being? Because God is a logical, rational, moral being. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts, you see, all the stars, all the planets, we recently went and traveled and saw the planetarium at the Creation Museum and saw the vast expanse of the universe. It is so mind-blowing. It is so mind-boggling. It is so beyond anything your mind can grasp or fathom. I just read an article recently. They just discovered, listen, folks, they didn't just discover another planet. They just recently discovered millions of other galaxies that contain millions upon millions of stars. And you have a choice to make. Did that happen from nothing? Or did it happen because God breathed it out of his mouth? <laughs> because by the word of God, the heavens were thrown out and spread out like a garment. And he holds the entire universe in the palm of his hand, which is to say, if you think the universe is infinite, you should, you should contemplate God. You should try, if you can't fathom the vastness of the universe, you should try to fathom God. People do not want an infinite God. They want a manageable God. They want a compartmentalized God. They want a God that fits their lifestyle. They want a keychain God that's just going to tag along for the ride. But they don't want an infinite, almighty, all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-holy, all-just God. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps of the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. How do you not fear a being who has the power to do this? Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That's right. That's the proper response to an infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God. Jaw dropped. It says... 
the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. You see that there? It's exactly what Hebrews is saying. He spoke and it was done. Let there be light and there was light. For he who spoke, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Faith helps us to believe in what we cannot see. And our faith is built upon the simple testimony, clear testimony of Scripture. I tell you what, I tell you to cling to the Word of God with everything within you. If there's one thing I, as a dying man, can impart to you, dying people, is that you never lose your grip on the Word of God. Do not get sidetracked. Do not get, do not get distracted by those that would wish to dilute the foundation of Christianity. It is built on revelation and nothing else. It is supernatural in every way. And let the world say what they want and let the world mock and scoff. Oh, you believe in that? Noah and the animals, you know, that whole little thing. You believe in Adam and Eve and, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, they were there in the garden with wearing fig leaves. Yeah, that's right. And how do you account for morality? How do you account for logic? How do you account for reason? How do you account for mathematics? How do you account for aesthetics? How do you account for metaphysics without that? The point is they can't. And therefore, our hope is made sure. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 24. I could just read it to you, but Romans 8.24 speaks to the very exact dynamic of faith in Hebrews. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, listen now, this is exactly in tandem with Hebrews. He hopes with perseverance, Excuse me, but if he hopes for what, he cannot, what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the book of Hebrews, what are we waiting eagerly for? What is our hope about? What is our faith bringing into reality in terms of our hope? What is our faith the assurance of the things that we hope for? What is that hope all about I've got several things that I want to point out to you from Hebrews. Number one, it is the hope of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, that we might receive what is promised. It is also the hope of final revelation, or excuse me, final uh, inheritance, sorry, final inheritance. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. This is what faith is making real to us. The reception of inheritance. At the end there, Hebrews 9, 15. Those who have been called that they may receive the promise of the in eternal inheritance. Stay with me now. Don't lose me. Also, it is the hope of final, eternal Sabbath rest. Hebrews 
Chapter 4, verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it goes on to say, verse, verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience as the old Israelites fell under disobedience. And finally, it is the hope of a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly city, Hebrews chapter 12, and an unshakable kingdom, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Look at this hope that we have. Let me try to work backwards. In each one of these elements, faith makes the hope of these future realities real to us now. The world gropes for governments with stable economies, devoid of global unrest, free of corruption, free of terrorism, but we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And by hope, by faith rather, that hope is real. Men build their cities. Look around here. They don't stop building, for goodness sakes. Cranes everywhere. But man has always built their own cities where they strive for rest and comfort and ease and technological advancement, but... We know that our faith is in a city whose builder and maker is God and who will never need to be upgraded. That's very near and dear to my heart because right off of the 423, they won't stop fixing that thing. I don't know when they'll ever finish. A, a, a two-minute drive for me is about a 20-minute wait. <laughs> So I, I've got a real pet peeve right now with road, uh, you know, with uh, infrastructure. No infrastructure ever needed for the kingdom of God. No repairing of infrastructure ever needed for the city of God. While people toil endlessly in search of satisfaction, we have a rest that remains for us, which is only found in Christ. Total rest, total, which is, which is to say total satisfaction, total tranquility. My wife and I were looking through a vacation magazine the other day. I saw these beautiful vacation spots. I won't lie to you. I want to go there. I want to go to these beautiful exotic beaches and look at these beautiful, you know, white sandy beaches and this crystal clear water and I want to go to the mountains and the, the beautiful scenery. But I know one thing from already being at places like that. I won't be satisfied. It's just temporary. You can pay 5000 bucks, get on a plane, go down to Hawaii, go down to Maui, go down to a beautiful beach. My wife and I did that. Give you an example of how it disappoints. We went for our honeymoon, and uh, I attempted to snorkel. Don't laugh. Told you not to laugh. <laughs> Couldn't see a single thing. <laughs> when at the worst possible day of the year, the water was completely cloudy, not muddy, but you know, cloudy, I couldn't see one clownfish in the water. I came up and said, this is the way it's supposed to be? <laughs> all that way, all that money. And it was great, and it was a blessing, it was wonderful, but it does not satisfy can I tell you that after a few days in Hawaii, I was ready to come home 
to Riverside, California, where my wife and I lived in the ghetto. Gunshots every night behind our house at the park. And I was ready to come home. <laughs> it doesn't satisfy. We are made for the city of the living God. And people, uh, boy, I tell you what, there's one thing that characterizes our culture, our world. It is the quest for fulfillment in the things that we possess, is it not? But while our materialistic world seeks for earthly treasures in things that will fade away, guess what? We have faith that we will take possession of an eternal inheritance that will never fade away. All of these great and marvelous promises, all of them ours by faith in God's word. 